Welcome to this edition of the Cherry Beckert Tax Beat. Today is May 4th, 2021, and our main topic of discussion will be the employer retention credit and how to maximize the monetization of it. But first, let's introduce my colleagues joining us on today's podcast. Sarah. Hello again, this is Sarah McGregor. I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. Marty. Hi, this is Marty Kerman out of our uh, Tyson's Virginia office. Robbie. This is Robbie Bergen out of the Auburn, Alabama location, leading the office down here. All right. And I'm Brooks Nelson, tax partner sitting in downtown Richmond, Virginia. So, Sarah McGregor, how's life treating you? As always, it's all good. Um, pretty excited to say that the uh, Vermont League baseball team here is getting ready to play uh, play its, its homestand. Uh, there's some festivals opening up and planned for the next couple of months. So I really feel like um, maybe the worst of COVID is behind us. How about you, Brooks? Yeah, likewise. I'm pretty psyched. I got like three different concert kind of tickets, uh, all all three outdoor venues, but live music for the first time. And uh, it's coming Monday. I will be in our Nashville office and I'm going to go to a Predators hockey game. So I do, like you, feel the uh, world is starting to open up and get back to a little more normal. Okay, so. Let's move on to the main event, the Employer Retention Credit, or ERC. We will frequently refer to it as ERC in this podcast. Um, This credit was first introduced with the CARES Act in March of 2020, later enhanced by the Consolidated Appropriations Act at the end of 2020, and then later extended by the American Rescue Plan Act in March of 2021. Uh, The credit is uh, designed to refund uh, payments to employers for wages paid for their employees during the pandemic. I would say kind of the philosophy is let's have the government help subsidize employers so they will keep employees on their payroll rather than laying off payroll and that the businesses were a more efficient distributor of money than the government could be in, uh, during the pandemic. Um, so. So to start us off, Marty, can you just kind of give us a brief overview of the actual mechanics of the credit? Yeah, absolutely, Brooks. Um, Just for background, the employee retention credit is, as you mentioned, designed to um, subsidize companies that have been harmed by COVID in one of two ways. Either they have had a significant decline in their gross receipts or they have found themselves limited Um, and suffering a partial shutdown due to government orders. Um, The credit itself can be as generous as $5,000 per employee uh, in 2020 or as high as $28,000 per employee in 2021. It is provided to employers by operation of the payroll tax system, and the credit itself is often designed to be much larger than the payroll tax liability. So it's a refundable credit, meaning that excess beyond the amount owed as a liability is actually refundable back to the taxpayer. And so they're using the payroll tax system in order to get money quickly to employers um, in order to uh, use it and keep people on the payroll. Okay, so Marty, um... You know, what types of companies, what type of industries have we been seeing benefit from this credit? And maybe if you can you know, give a flavor of what, you know, what level of refunds that uh, we have seen in our client base taking advantage of this program. I mean, yeah, just to talk about the level of refunds that we've seen, 
we've seen clients have anywhere from you know the high ten thousands of um, of refunds up to uh, the multi of multiple millions really of refunds, and it all is a factor of how big you are um, as an employer and how many employees you have. And so if, um, you know, you have a lot of employees and you qualify as an eligible employer, meaning that you're, you're been harmed by COVID, um, this can actually be quite beneficial to you because the more employees you have, the more employees go into uh, the credit calculation from an industry perspective. It's an industry agnostic credit. It applies to everybody and we're seeing different industries, um, apply it to their businesses differently. For example, we'll see the hospitality industry um, have large credits in 2020 and 2021 due to restrictions on restaurants, restrictions on hotels. I've seen manufacturers have it a lot in 2020 uh, due to some work from home orders and partial restrictions on their businesses um, that don't exist anymore in 2021. Um, I have seen in the tech industry, fewer companies actually take advantage of it due to the fact that they could all work from home uh, for the most part. And so that's just an interesting thing to uh, to think about as, as we're going about it from, from an industry perspective. Um, but it really is going to be based on your geography, based on based on how many people you have uh, at your at your um, at, in, in your sales force who may or may not be able to travel. Um, it really is going to vary client to client. Um, but from an overall industry perspective, I saw a lot of companies taking advantage um, of the government mandates in 2020. And I'm seeing more companies take advantage of and become eligible employers due to uh, the decline in gross receipts in 2021. Just a real quick follow up. Uh, you know, how many employees do you, does one have to have to make sense for the credit? Yeah, so um, it can make sense for everybody, regardless of your employee number, but where the biggest benefits accrue in 2020 would be for companies that have 100 or fewer full-time employees. And then in 2021, it would be companies that have 500 or fewer full-time employees. And the reason for that is, in general, the credit requires you to only include wages you pay to people you're keeping on the payroll who may not have work to do. But if you fall into these smaller company re regimes, meaning 100 or fewer or 500 or fewer, respectively, in 2020 and 2021, you actually, as an employer, are allowed to include the wages that you pay to every employee on your payroll. So that adds up very quickly. Um, and so that sweet spot really is companies right now who are suffering a 20% decline that have fewer than 500 full-time employees. These, these are the companies getting the largest benefits. And uh, Robbie, We've been talking about uh, the credit. Marty's been describing the credit, but the real advantage here is to get it turned into cash uh, and, and how quickly. We're sitting now at the very start of the second quarter. Uh, if you were advising uh, an employer right now looking into second quarter, what, what would you recommend about how to take the best advantage of this credit? Yeah, Sarah, that's a great question. And, and obviously, one we get a lot, right? Everybody wants to know how do we actually realize the benefit to this thing? um and and get it flowing and, and actually you know start affecting the business which is is the purpose of it so we're seeing really three main ways to monetize at this point uh one being filing for a cash refund really on your regularly filed 941 obviously for quarter one that opportunity is already gone but that opportunity still exists as you get to the end of quarter two the other way to do that is to get a cash refund 
on an amended 941, which is what we're seeing a lot of folks doing for quarter one currently, being that it's already closed, you've already submitted your 941, but you still have that opportunity to amend the 941 and claim a refund uh, that way or carry that forward, that credit forward to be used in, in future quarters. The next big method uh, that's out there to really realize the benefit here is via the advanced payment form 7200. That can be filed anytime in a quarter uh, that you're, you're, you're doing a payroll run, uh, anytime before that 941 is filed. So obviously you couldn't do it any longer for quarter one, but you've got an opportunity and can do it as frequently as every payroll run in quarter two, or again, any active quarter, whenever anyone may be listening to this podcast. The last way uh, that you can really monetize uh, this program and, and start to realize that benefit um, in as much as you're qualifying in the active quarter. So for those that are qualifying in quarter two that we're sitting in right now today, uh, you can actually just adjust those payroll remittances keep uh keep those dollars that you would otherwise remit to the irs and you're instantly realizing that benefit you don't have to pay it out and then wait for the irs to send you a check you just again once you know you qualify are able to uh hold on to those uh, cash amounts and then um you know right size that credit at the end of the quarter when you file your 941s i like uh door number three uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sounds sound like keeping money inside the checking account uh, of the company is the the fastest way to to turn this out uh, in, into that um, on there. Uh, so you you talked about filing refunds. Any sense of how quickly the IRS is paying out on on refunds, either the uh, overpayments from a form nine forty one or uh, on these form seventy two hundred refund claims? Yeah, Sarah, you must have talked to every one of our clients, I feel like, because you just hit the top two questions I feel like that we get, right? How do we how do we monetize this thing? And then, uh, okay, we figured out the way to do it. Now, how long is it going to take? Let me, let me set my clock and mark my calendar. Um, unfortunately, the IRS hasn't really provided clear guidance on how long these things are going to take. Uh, as I think everybody's aware right now, they're, the IRS is uh, very busy, right, with uh, everything going on. Uh, with taxes um, and everything else so uh, we've had some we've submitted and helped clients submit really in all three of these ways um, and are closely monitoring when those when those checks come in um, but uh, we're you know we're hearing for for 2020 amended returns we're hearing somewhere between six and nine months um, and then in the active quarters uh, that's really the, the quickest way, uh, again, is getting it on your active 941. Those are often able to be processed electronically. So, so that's really the quickest method if you're not able to do uh, Brooks's favorite door of just holding on to the cash in the active quarter. Um, and then the amended returns in the active year, right, amending a Q1 at this point. Uh, we're, we're hearing somewhere around three months, but again, uh, we're still waiting to see what that actual looks like for a couple clients um, to really get a good feel for how that is actually playing out. So if there is a line uh, to, to get a refund, you want to get into it, get in that line and in that queue as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. The, the short answer is get it, get it filed as soon as possible. Uh, you know, on things with like uh, a, a quarter one, even an amended return there, 
assuming you qualify for quarter one, but maybe not for quarter two, you've got the option to carry that credit forward and use it in for future quarters, right? So that might be the right option uh, for people's business to realize that immediately by stopping remitting in quarter one by using that uh, overpayment you would have had uh, in quarter uh, one via quarter two. All right, well, I mean, to summarize, regardless of which door you're you're going for, the sooner you act, the better, right? All right, so um, let's stop back. Uh, let's step back and just uh, cover, you know, some of the uh, bigger picture issues here. Uh, as Marty kind of referred to, there are two main ways for an employer to qualify for this. Um, one is a business receipts test or a gross receipts test. So, Marty, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in order to qualify, you have to have what the statute defines as a significant decline in your gross receipts, and it's done on a quarterly basis in order to determine what your uh, what your eligibility is. So for the 2020 year, you as an employer need to review what your quarterly gross receipts are in quarters one, two, three, and four, and compare those to quarters one, two, three, and four of 2019, respectively, to the extent in any one of those quarters, you have a reduction of more than 50% in gross receipts. Um, you then are an eligible employer for the current quarter and at least for um, the subsequent quarter as well. In 2021, however, the Congress really made it easier to qualify. You only need to have a greater than 20% decline in your gross receipts when you look at your quarterly receipts in quarters one, two, three, and four. Um, compared to, again, back to 2019, quarters one, two, three, and four in 2019. The way the rule technically works in 2021 is you can look at what your current quarter's gross receipts are compared to the same quarter in 2019 or the prior quarter um, compared to that same quarter in 2019. Practically, what that really means, though, is to the extent you qualify on your quarter one, two, three, quarter one, two, or three actuals, um, you will become qualified for that quarter and the subsequent quarter as well. So that's um, just a little thing to think about that clients may not know is that they actually can qualify for two quarters just based on qualifying uh, in one. Uh, and just as a note of clarification, um, what's your method of accounting for these gross receipts? Does it matter? It, it, it certainly does, um, but it's not specific to the credit calculation. You follow what your normal method of accounting is as you would then later have it translated and reported on the front of your tax return. So when you're thinking about gross receipts, you're thinking about typical like line one C gross receipts, which are sales, less returns and allowances, plus dividends, interest, rents, royalties, and the other income line as well. So it's an expansive definition of gross receipts um, in both the 2019 year and in those, uh, in those current quarters. And Marty, is there a difference between looking at a uh, for-profit entity and not-for-profits aren't there some differences there yeah there really are um there's two that i can that, that come come up quite a bit the first is when we are calculating our gross receipts generally for for-profit businesses we have to do it on a controlled group basis meaning to the extent we have companies that are more than 50 percent controlled by the same five or fewer individuals or or companies um you need to look at everything together and and look at your gross receipts calculation within that control group and also eliminate your inner companies um, the, the not-for-profits don't have the same uh, control group affiliation rules. So that's one simplification. 
Um, but there's a very unfair rule, I think, for not-for-profits in that um, to the extent they sell an asset, they can't um, reduce the receipts by the basis of that asset. They actually have to bring in the total receipts, whereas a for-profit entity does not have to actually can reduce the basis. It seems unfair, but that is the way the rules are written right now. So it's a it's a gross proceeds versus just recognizing yeah. the gain in your gross correct um, in your total uh, receipts calculation. Uh, that is is great. Well, you know we've talked about comparing quarters to nineteen. Can a new business that got started um, after sometime during the pandemic in in twenty twenty or even twenty one what uh, are they eligible in any way for this credit? From a gross receipts test perspective, the answer is is still yes. So to the extent you began your operations in 2020, um, specifically one of the newer notices that came out, notice 2021-23 clarifies that if there are no 2019 gross receipts, you can actually substitute the year 2020 instead of the year 2019 when you're looking back. Um, to the extent you began operations in 2021, the answer is no from a gross receipts perspective, but you still can qualify under the government mandate test. Great. Well, so I think that kind of leads to the next uh, topic here. So we've talked about the that the, there are two different ways to qualify, and we just talked about the gross receipts. So can you uh, break down the government mandate qualification requirements? Yeah. yeah, technically the way the rule is written is if a business experiences what it defines as a partial shutdown, which when I talk about this with clients, I like to just think about the word disruption. That's a better way to think about it in some ways, but technically you have to have um, a partial shutdown due to orders issued by a governmental authority limiting commerce, travel, or group meetings. The easiest way to think about this is when you put yourself in the mindset of a company in March of 2020, March 13th, 2020 through April, May 2020, there were myriad work from home orders throughout the country, just a web of different orders. Um, to the extent you worked in a school, there were there were school closures. Um, there were certain, uh, obviously, capacity limitations on restaurants. These are the three of the biggest types of orders that you think of um, as, as government orders that basically disrupt a business and force it to operate in a way that it wouldn't normally. Now, the test then requires you to analyze those disruptions, those orders, and to the extent you can still get the same amount of work done comparably, say from home, technically then you don't qualify, you don't really have a partial shutdown, but to the extent you need, would need to be in the office to do work, or um, you would need to be on the road and there are travel restrictions, um, or you, would have to, you had uh, large um, trade shows that were planned and were all, all canceled. A lot of this was happening very specifically back March, April, May of last year. These government orders um, were very prevalent. I think they're very prevalent specifically for the 2020 test. When we get into 2021, um, much more focused on things like restaurants and hotels, where, where we see these government orders, less on everything else, which is why for purposes of the credit, in 2020, I saw more companies using government orders because a greater than 50% decline in gross receipts is very hard to do, very hard to achieve. Um, whereas there aren't as many orders today, at least not as many on um, all the businesses that there were uh, before. And even if there are stay-at-home orders, businesses have adapted and they've understood how to. We all know how to use Teams. We all know how to use Zoom. We're, we're doing the same things from home, maybe even better in, in some cases. So um, 
the government orders are less prevalent as a method of qualification in 2021. So now does the does the government mandate and, and a partial shutdown or disruption, uh, does it then qualify all wages during that quarter or just during uh, those, those periods of disruption? Uh, whereas a gross receipts would qualify, could qualify all wages that occurred during that, that quarter. Yeah, it, great question. And the length of time is, is directly tied to the length of time the order is out there. That is the out, that is the beginning and end for the outside um, as, as to when, when you can pick up um, potentially qualifying wages. An order may be out there and you may stop being partially disrupted based on your specific facts and circumstances. So you may actually have a smaller period of qualification, but you don't get it for the entire quarter once you get it, unlike under the gross receipts test. So um, obviously the mandate and the partial shutdown, there's more art to this calculation or, or determination. Um, so uh, I would say the basic advice is you need to uh, talk to our 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 experts here, Marty, Robbie, and his team to make those quali uh, those qualified judgments. Um, and just to be clear, Marty, uh, you got the revenue test, you got the government mandate. They're two separate tests, separate and distinct. You could, but you can use them for different quarters or not. Can you go back and forth between the different tests as you go through? You can, you can, to the extent there was an order that didn't exist previously that was later issued. Uh, and you hit gross receipts earlier, but then you fell out of that test. Right. Um, yeah, you, you can absolutely do that. And I really see that when we're looking at the differences in 2020 and you're picking up sec a 2021 credit. You did it on government orders in 2020, and then you did it on gross receipts in 2021. Right. All right. Complicated stuff for sure. All right, Sarah. Uh, speaking of complicated, I know you guys have been working with a number of different kinds of employers and digging through their data and trying to identify these uh, uh, eligible wages and calculating the credit. Um, Robbie, what, what's been your experience working with companies and handling payroll in-house versus those that use a, an outside payroll sort of service? Yeah, so, you know, as we got to the end of quarter one, as you can imagine with all the clients we're working with and the, the um, amount of ERCs we're doing, uh, there was a big uh, push, right, to get everything on the regularly filed 941 as far as the ERC calculation goes uh, to the point of what we talked about earlier, that being really the best method of uh, realizing that benefit is getting it on your regularly filed 941. Uh, those companies who do payroll in-house, they had, you know, 30 days after the end of the quarter to file those 941s, a lot of time and flexibility to get the data needed. Um, to get the ERC calculated, to work around, you know, any any PPP uh, that needed to be excluded, that sort of thing. Uh, for those clients who have uh, a payroll provider, however, um, you know, a lot of those payroll providers uh, are, are closing off access to the 941s uh, as of the end of the quarter. Uh, in the best of cases where we were able to work with those payroll providers to, to get an extension of really up to a week, maybe 10 days in, in, in the best of cases. Um, but it, it really was a much quicker turnaround for those payroll providers, um, just because as you can imagine, they're working with so many companies filing so many 941s, they have to set some stricter deadlines than the average operating company who is just dealing with their own payroll themselves. Was there a difference in working with um, a, a professional employer organization, a PEO, who actually has these employees but 
technically they the employees are doing all the service for for the company or the the, the business. Yeah, that's another uh, I guess wrinkle uh, to a, a a credit like the ERC that flows through uh, payroll, right? So, um, you know, companies that are utilizing a PEO uh, that is a, a very different setup. So for those that aren't as familiar, obviously a, a PEO is a structure by which the, the PEO, the payroll company actually technically employs the employees who are working for the operating company um, and the payroll provider is able to realize some efficiencies by consolidating multiple companies, employees at, at, one, at one time for things like benefits and, and other things. So able to offer a lower cost of ownership, if you will, for that payroll cost uh, for the companies. And so what that means is you go to do your payroll tax filings and especially contemplating something like the ERC, it makes it a little more difficult to do what we may casually talk about of getting your ERC on your regularly filed 941 or even amending in a 941, right? Because those PEOs are filing a 941 that may include hundreds or thousands of employees from multiple different companies all together at once. And so that uh, innately creates difficulty in tracking an ERC credit through to a specific company, a specific employee. Um, one of the best ways we've seen to, to work around situations where there is a PEO uh, is really via that Form 7200 for advanced payment we talked about. So again, as long as the 941 hasn't been submitted yet, uh, companies are able to take advantage of that Form 7200 for advanced payment that effectively, from the company standpoint, will bypass the PEO. And what I mean by that is that Form 7200 is submitted directly between the company and the IRS. And so obviously you still have to report that Form 7200 advance payment to your PEO and have them put that amount and that data onto that regularly filed 941. However, the check, if you will, for the ERC comes directly from the IRS to the company um, and, and bypasses the, the fear, frankly, that a lot of people had that they're uh, ERC would get kind of caught up in limbo within their PEO and and may never get truly assigned back to them and truly come back to them as a, a cash infusion to the company that the government intended it to be. Okay. Um, Marty, you know, you've worked with some, you and Robbie have worked with some large employers, thousands of employees, and some some of the smaller ones, uh, you know, those that are benefiting those under 100 or under 500 employees. What were some of the challenges or issues or, or benefits that you saw uh, large employers taking advantage of and some of the challenges for, for smaller employers? Um, it's interesting. I think there's there may be more challenges for, for larger employers in some ways, um, especially back in 2020, there were a lot more larger employers than there are today. Uh, who also weren't getting PPP. Um, one of the challenges that we had really was working with people at the company to find out exactly who was on the payroll and who was being paid not to work. That's a very sensitive topic to discuss with an employer and the employees because no one wants to out themselves as being an employee who's getting paid not to do anything. So that's, that's sensitive. Um, and also more difficult to document than it is when you have an employer who um, who's you know, who's smaller, even at 100 or, or 500 or fewer. Um, 
but there were a good number of employee, large employers taking advantage of it um, and picking up and including essentially wages paid to people not providing services. There is not a lot of that right now in 2021. Um, north of 500 full-time employees, I really haven't run across many companies taking a credit um, because they have adapted their businesses primarily um, and uh, they're not anymore paying people not to work. Uh, so, Marty, uh, you talked about the challenges and the benefits to large employers. Uh, what about smaller employers? Smaller employers have a challenge in the fact that um, the owners are generally employees as well, and you can't include the owners um, to the extent they have a greater than 50% ownership, and you generally can't include um, their spouse as well. So that will take down the benefit from what, the, from what they think it's going to be. Um, also, just from a documentation perspective, doing a lot of work to get a smaller credit um, Sometimes a small employer may not want to do that um, in order to, to spend the time doing that, but um, there are efficient ways to, to get at it and they, they should claim that credit to the extent they're entitled to it. All right. Um, so um, Cherry Beckert recently hosted a webinar on the uh, payroll protection program and ERC. Uh, we got several questions in from our participants. Um, particularly concerning the coordination of ERC with other CARES Act programs, um, such as the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, the Shuttered Venues Grants, and, and PPP loans as well. So, Robbie, uh, how do the rules between those coordinate with ERC? Yeah, so that's something to, to definitely be aware of, right, the, the interplay between PPP and ERC. In 2020, we saw that being a little more cut and dry because a lot of folks had already done their forgiveness on PPP. And so it was just a matter of not double dipping, if you will, those same payroll dollars. As we get into 2021, a lot of folks are getting a PPP2 loan um, and they're not being forgiven yet. And the rules are a little different uh, in a lot of ways for PPP2. Obviously, what we do, we always want to make sure that the PPP2 or, or one, in either case, the forgiveness is protected, right? That's the better benefit. It's a dollar for dollar benefit, whereas ERC is a 50 cents or 70 cents on the dollar, depending on the year. Um, so that PPP is the most important, uh, but there's some ways to do both, right? So ERC in 2021 is only looking at the first $10,000 in wages paid to an employee uh, for the quarter. So when you look at that, you you really almost look at it backwards, though we're protecting PPP. We want to isolate that ERC first, um, maximize that, and then any wages in excess of that could be applied to PPP forgiveness. Obviously, you got to watch out for things like when the PPP was dispersed, looking at your covered period uh, for the PPP2 loan. Um, we typically advise clients to take uh, a longer cover period up to 24 weeks just in order to, uh, again, stretch out those payroll dollars. Um, you can also capture right up to 40% of those other costs to be used against your PPP forgiveness, freeing up that 60% of payroll costs uh, to maximize both right. ERC and PPP. Right. So I think the, uh, you know, again, the short answer here is, is there a lot of complexity and nuances between how all these different programs interact with each other and trying to maximize the benefit. All right, so I think it's uh, time to wrap up here. So I'm gonna turn it back over to Marty, uh, our expert, our resident expert uh, for your final thoughts on wrap up. I have two final thoughts. 
the one thing that everybody forgets at the end um, when they're taking the employee retention credit is that really what you're doing here is you're trading in an income tax deduction for a credit that's much more beneficial. So there is a corresponding reduction in your wages, wage deduction um, on the income tax return. That's something to think about when you think about what your net benefits are. But most importantly, I would just say, um, don't wait to claim it, claim it soon. The IRS is getting backlogged. And so to the extent you need the cash, um, do what you can to calculate those credits. And uh, in the way that Robbie discussed earlier, um, there are methods of getting that money immediately. You can monetize that by uh, really turning off the amount you remit for your payroll taxes for the rest of the year to the extent you get a big enough credit. And that's the best way to get that credit. And that's what the government intended. Well said, well said. All right, a quick disclaimer that we are not providing personal tax advice on this podcast. Please consult with your personal tax advisor, hopefully at Cherry Beckert, with your specific tax issues. Check out the firm's website at cbh.com for the latest guidance and materials on this and other tax and business topics. I want to put in a plug or two here. We've we've had a couple uh, webinars which really go into some of the detailed rules with examples. So check those out if you want to see more visual and um, examples. That concludes today's podcast on the employer retention credit. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. We truly appreciate it. Let's call it a day and go forth in peace.